I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I have a conversation with Marissa Baradaran. We discuss her book, The Color of Money. In this book, she explores the history and origins of this country's racial wealth gap, especially in relation to the creation of segregated economies and Black-owned banks. We also discuss how more than a century of policy and structural racism contributed to today's wealth gap, as well as attempts by recent administrations to address the problem. And lastly, what we should expect from future administrations. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mirsa Baradaran. Mirsa Baradaran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So you opened with a quote in your book from Dr. King, which kind of, I think, epitomizes one of the central problems with racial and financial inequality. And it's the idea that Black poverty is seen as a moral failing or as a social problem, as opposed to when people view you know, white poverty, it's seen as, as an economic problem or as a depression. Mm-hmm. I think I understand what that means, but, but what did he mean by that exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think what Dr. King meant is, you know, when we talk about uh, black poverty, we tend to think of it as like this, you know, you know, some sort of niche problem that the social scientists can can deal with. And then when we think about actual inequality with, you know, white populations, then it becomes an economic problem. You know, we're talking about the jobs report. We're trying to get the Federal Reserve involved and all this stuff. And, and he says in there, look, the black population has been suffering a depression for 200 years, you know, and, and no one has taken it as seriously. If, if the white population had suffered that level of poverty and inequality in the land of plenty, then we would take it seriously as an economic problem. And you've seen that now in some of the conversations right after the election, everyone's like, this is economic anxiety and, you know, all look at this white poverty and this inequality. And, and, you know, you look at these black communities and they've been suffering from these very same causes for generations. And, you know, we don't see it as a systemic sort of economic problem. We see it as a Black problem. And therefore, we don't harness all of the sources of policymaking and and our economic levers to, to remedy it. Right. So in a way, it's kind of linked to the person, right? The person has failed, right? Or the community has yes. failed versus, you know, the system within that. But you talk about the fact that after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, that the Black community owned less than 1% of the nation's wealth. But that, that hasn't improved very much. How does that compare to the amount of wealth that's owned by the Black community today? Yeah. So, you know, in 1865, it was about 1%. And today it's about 1%. I mean, really, there has any wow. effort to remedy this has been an utter failure. And, you know, this is 150 years later, and there really has not been very much progress. And in fact, it's not even like you could say it's closing. You know, we're getting places. And, and you know, certainly there has been progress and there has been a lot of improvement. You know, I, we certainly are in a different climate racially than we were in 1865. Thank goodness. But as far as the economic indicators, those haven't budged as much. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting is that, you know, beginning with slavery, I think what often people fail to examine is when we think about slavery, we think about it as a humanitarian failure often, right? And, but we don't think about the stark reality of slaves were essentially assets. I mean, we know that they were property, you know, on an intellectual level, but we don't really take into account what that actually means. And I, I was listening to a lecture by Ta-Nehisi Coates a few months ago, and he crystallized it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. You know, he said that, imagine if you were to go to half of the country and say, you know, hey, all of your, your houses, all of your cars and your businesses that you've worked so hard and invested in, those are now illegal. It's illegal to own those Mm -hmm, and we're going to take them away, right? And that's how people viewed slaves then. And I think we kind of fail. We fail to, to, to recognize that now. 
Absolutely. And it was, you know, a lot of wealth was created using slave bodies, using black bodies as collateral. So you would have, you would count it on your sort of balance sheets of your plantation or your, um, you know, your mine. You know, these are the, the, the property that you owned and you would get loans based on the um, sort of monetary value that was attached to that property. And people would insure it, right? You'd Like you'd insure any sort of collateral um, and you would use it in accounting. And a lot of that wealth, I mean, you know, I think we, we tend to think that a lot of that wealth is eradicated during the Civil War, but a lot of it stayed. You know, there, there are still institutions and not just in the South, in the New York markets, right? Because this was all this huge cotton industry in Liverpool, New York, Chicago, and in the South, of course, producing the cotton. But a lot of this wealth remains today. Some of the biggest banking houses and private industry was based on this wealth that was, you know, uh, unrighteously, how do you say it, like cruelly taken through the tragedy that was slavery. And, and I think we don't talk about it in those ways. There's this myth that, well, slavery was dying anyway because it was the Industrial Revolution and that it wasn't profitable and, and that could not be more false. Like they would there would not have been a war with tons of bodies thrown into it if slavery was dying anyway. This was something that had to be taken through violence from the Southern economy. And as soon as you have emancipation, a lot of those economic exploitation was reformed in, in different ways, right? Now you can no longer own slaves, but you certainly can exploit their labor through, you know, sharecropping, through convict leasing, through all of these ways in which, you know, a lot of Black people stayed slaves. You know, I think there's there are yeah. these quotes that says, you know, if this is freedom, then show me slavery, you know? And there's a lot of, you know, misunderstanding about what it was to be a free laborer in the South, right? If you were Black, there's all of these codes and contracts that essentially recreated slave labor because the whole Southern industry and the Northern industry as well, it was cheap production of cotton. And the only way that that could be extracted was if one, you didn't give slaves land and you involved them in this debt economy through sharecropping. You know, I think James Baldwin says that Reconstruction was just a deal with the slaveholder and in, in the North where the North delivered the slaves and handed them back to their masters, you know. A lot of these arrangements, these, these sharecropping arrangements were essentially the same master, the same foreman, the same land, you know, just we call it something different. And certainly, you know, it's not to say that it was as bad as slavery. It certainly wasn't. And, and it did get better. But economically, it was the exploitation of black labor for many, many years longer than I think we recognize. Yeah, but, you know, after slavery formally ended, I think people have a tendency to think of, you know, just the South kind of perpetuating this. But as you point out, like the North, mm-hmm. they were complicit in many ways in perpetuating, you know, the, the oppression of, of, you know, freed slaves, right? And what are some other ways in which they kind of facilitated this? Absolutely. I mean, the North politically did nothing to to ensure that the rights that were, you know, fought for during the Civil War and, and through the, you know, 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment were enforced, right? The courts starting in the 1880s just used all of those, the 14th Amendment specifically, that was supposed to give Blacks equal rights. They used them to protect corporations. They refused to recognize the claims of Blacks. The 15th Amendment, you know, this is the right to vote, right? Why do we have the Voting Rights Act? Because the 15th Amendment was useless. It was not enforced. Blacks did not have the right to vote. They had it on the books, but they didn't have it in their day-to-day lives. And part of it is this economic exploitation where you can't use your political power if you are economically under the thumb of your master. And then there's all this violence. You know, the Klan, I think, again, that timeline, I think people say, okay, well, there was slavery and then there was the Klan. But no, there was this moment 
of reconstruction. And there was this moment where things were being worked out and the Klan has a resurgence, right? The Klan is at its peak in the 1920s, right? This is many years after the Civil War. And, you know, when the South felt under threat from increasing, you know, northward migration and other big changes in the economy. And so in the North, they just sort of washed their hands of it because politically it's not scoring votes as it was before. And the other thing is that not to say that that's why the North supported it. I mean, I think there was definitely moral reasons that pushed a lot of people to do it. But also in the North, once you start having the Great Migration, you know, starting in 1907, 1910, as soon as the migrants came up North, they were segregated into these, you know, highly concentrated Black ghettos uh, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Baltimore, in New York. And there were certainly opportunities and work that was less onerous and exploitative than the South. But even there, they were left out of some of the union gains, you know, in the progressive era. But there's so many ways in which they were kind of excluded from the economy, right? You know, beginning with not being able to allow to own property and, you know, not being able to get credit. You know, so this kind of precipitated the idea of creating a separate Black financial system or Black banks, essentially, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And there was heavy, you know, Jim Crow in the South. We've got, you know, white water fountains and white railroad cars. But in the North, you also have institutions that do not have their doors open to Blacks. And so this is, you do have the creation of Black business, Black banks, and they're filling a void. They're filling a void that was created by the market where people wouldn't touch Blacks. You know, there's insurance, the insurance market, right? Insur- it was a huge way of people, you know, before 401ks, before Social Security, before the social safety net, people insured, they, they had to insure their lives. And there's big insurance companies. There was this, you know, 1897, I think, document where they said the Black population is headed toward extinction. So uh, people shouldn't insure them, right? And so insurance companies stopped insuring Blacks. And so this has created, you know, a niche for Black insurance companies. And so a lot of the early businesses were Black insurance companies. But why, you know, why were there Black insurance companies? Because the white insurance companies were under the spell of pseudoscience that was saying that Blacks were dying, certainly dying of starvation and hair loss and, you know, all of these things that were causing harm in the Black community. And and this researcher, this quote-unquote scientist, says it's not because of hunger and deprivation and overwork. It's because of their racial qualities, you know. And it sounds laughable now, but it was at the time a believable claim and really led to some business decisions that excluded Blacks from protections. Right. So you have all of these pillars that excluded Blacks, like, you know, property ownership, you know, credit, and now insurance, right? All of those are needed for prosperity, Right. So you have these black banks and it sounds empowering. But the, the idea of isolating black institutions was problematic in itself. Right. Just the isolation. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the, the one of the central claims of the book is that you know, banking and credit and capital, it works in a network. And when you a group of people, I mean, you can segregate blacks, which was happening. Right. You can put them in a in the ghetto. You could put them in the black neighborhood and not open their white institutions for them. But you can't segregate money. So the money is going to flow out of the black banks and the black businesses and the black quarters into the mainstream yeah. networks. And so the idea of black banking and black businesses, you know, if you're going to segregate us, we will create our own institutions and serve ourselves. And and while that theoretically seems to work, it doesn't work practically because once banks start taking deposits and lending, that money just escapes the community. And I show exactly the mechanisms through which that happens. But, you know, it's a frustrating endeavor. I mean, despite sort of the best intentions and the best efforts of these black entrepreneurs, you're not able to capture the profits. You know, you can you can take deposits and you can lend, but if not only is it a high cost endeavor, I mean, you're paying more for everything. You're, you know, suffering from the sort of discrimination, of, you know, from left and right, but you're also the money that you are able to capture is leaking out of your bank. 
Right. Uh, you know, I want to go back a bit because one thing I didn't understand. So when, when these institutions were first formed shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation, where did black bank owners and black business owners originally get the capital to start these institutions? You know, they got it from the community. You know, you see a lot of these black banks, early black banks were formed as auxiliary to a black church or black fraternal society or a mutual aid society. I mean, these were cohesive communities. I mean, they, they had to be, you know, there's this great Ta-Nehisi quotes quote um, that I put in the book, you know, you put us into a race, you labeled us a race and we created a people, you know, yeah. where there's called racecraft. Like race isn't real in the way we think it's real, you know? I mean, so once you say, okay, well, you have the one drop rule, so you're black and you go into this black border, then they say, fine. Black people said, fine. We are now a people. We're a community. And so they created all of these ways in which the black community was just serving itself. You know, you've got the churches, you've got social clubs and economic places. And so black banks were part and parcel of these organizations, right? One example is Maggie Walker's bank, um, which is one of the most successful. She's one of the tycoons of black banking before the Great Depression. And, and her bank is one of the only ones that actually survives the Great Depression. But she is in Richmond and she is a member of the St. Luke's Society, which is one of these church slash, you know, fraternal society, mutual aid, insurance, burial, et cetera, every, everything. And she creates a bank that, you know, is able to provide mortgages and savings and all of this stuff and, and does it through just accumulating people's deposits. You know, she got a community to support her bank and um, trust her with their savings. And she was good on that trust. She made good on it and, and was able to operate her bank successfully. Um, so a lot of these banks resembled that. They weren't getting capital from just, you know, personal wealth or from business wealth. They were getting it through community cooperation. Yeah, but one of the problems I think that you point out is that the size of the deposits was problematic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so the, the precarious nature of the Black economic situation generally kind of led to the precarious nature of the banks. The deposits were smaller. You know, they needed to take out, you know, more with yeah, withdrawals, yeah. right? Because, you know, their their personal financial situations mm-hmm. weren't, yeah. weren't good. Absolutely. So you have uh, banks uh, profit when there are large deposits that are held at the bank through fractional reserve lending. Um, banks take all the deposits and they keep a small percentage of them. And they lend out the rest. And that's how banks make money. Banks don't profit from your deposits. They profit from the loans, the interest they get on the loans, right? And so if their deposits are large and stable, they're going to be able to make more loans that are much more profitable. But with black banks, their deposits were small and fickle, so very volatile. So blacks, because of the concentrated poverty, because of this inability to gain large wealth, they had small deposits. And so this this cost the banks a lot and it inhibited their ability to make loans that were profitable. And so this is a huge sort of handicap for black banks that just was a natural result of, you know, segregation and concentrated poverty. And then, of course, on the asset side, they're moneymaker. The loans, usually banks make money on mortgages or business loans. And here, blacks were restricted from owning valuable property. And this is something that goes until today. I mean, this is not a relic of the Jim Crow era, but there's still data that a black community wanted tips from a white community to a black community, the houses stop increasing in value. And we still have a right. segregated discriminatory market. And so you know, if you're a bank and you're holding these mortgages that are not increasing in value, that you know, you're holding an underwater mortgage. And then for the homeowner, of course, you're not able to trap that wealth in your home like the majority of the white middle class is able to do. So this was an area where black banks were also caught in this racialized uh, mortgage market that um, they couldn't change just through bank operations. 
Right. And one thing we haven't talked about is how, you know, racial violence played played a part in this. Right. I mean, so when there were some some black sectors, like I think you mentioned Durham, North Carolina and Tulsa, Oklahoma, they had some really successful districts, black districts. Right. Absolutely. Can you talk a bit about what happened, like in Greenwood, for instance? You know, in in Greenwood, in in Tulsa, when the black community actually threw some oil wealth, it's one of the only black communities that was able to actually accrue some significant wealth and create a black Wall Street that was profitable. And, you know, the racial tensions got heated and, you know, uh, one thing led to another and there was a white riot and drove the blacks out of town. I mean, literally you've had black Tulsa refugees being sent around the country. You know, there's death and fire and violence. And and one of the things that happened there that was super, you know, interesting um, looking at the modern lens is that the blacks in Tulsa were armed. And that was one yeah. of the, yeah, one of the, the sort of you know, pushes toward violence is that, you know, it's one thing for you to have money, but then to like defend yourself. No, you know, even though we see this as like the most American of rights, it, it was not able to be executed by black gun owners um, who wanted to protect their property because the state wasn't doing it. You know, on the topic of violence, I mean, you see a lot of instances of violence where a black, you know, the, the Austrian suite, um, you know, it's a black doctor, uh, you know, there's several others, Jesse Binga and others as well, where, you know, you are, you know, a wealthy black middle-class family and you want to move into a white neighborhood or, you know, an integrated neighborhood and and the neighbors don't want you there. And it's not just because they're racist, but it's this economic thing that I was just talking about, right? If the neighborhood becomes black, everyone loses their property values. And so they are financially incentivized and also maybe racially. And so they need to drive you out of that neighborhood and it leads to violence. And this in this particular case, the suites moved into this neighborhood. They paid a premium for their house, which is typical of black middle-class families at the time. And a mob forms and you know, violence ensues and there's bombing and there's fire throwing and, and, and the suites, you know, they defended themselves too. They had guns, you know, they were ready for the attack and someone from inside the house shot out at the mob and killed someone. And, you know, of course he's tried and it's this long saga, um, you know, which is covered in this book, Arc of Justice, which is excellent. But, but that's just one example. And it was a prominent one because of the trial. But a lot of times the bombings just went unfocused on, right? Because there wasn't a death, right? There was yeah. just bombing and mobs or the threat of bombing and mobs and the black families who were brave enough to move in, either moved back out or fought it, or, um, you know, a lot of Black families just decided that they didn't want to deal with the hassle. And so the bombing and the, the threats of violence, that sort of shifts over time, you know, to, you know, racial covenants, to zoning through neighborhood associations with, you know, certain guidance. And, and all of that was very much racially coded. Um, racial covenants were enforceable into the, you know, 50s and remained on the deeds after that. Um, and there's a contract between the buyer and the seller that stays with with the house, right, that says that no one that's not white Caucasian can uh, buy this house. You know, I want to stay with that idea, but I want to make a link because the links aren't quite clear to me. So you, you talk about home ownership and you talk about white flight, essentially, which is what happens when black families start to move into to white neighborhoods. And what's conflated, I think, is the economic effects of having black families move into white neighborhoods and racism and where that line is, right? So going back mm -hmm. to slavery, the idea of racial inferiority and slaves being an asset, a financial asset, were kind of conflated. And, and it's not clear to me which came first, right? Because in order for slaves to have value, you had to dehumanize them. Dehumanizing them led to racism. Like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the racism or... Is it the financial issue that it causes? Yeah, no, look, um, we needed to justify slavery and we needed to justify inequality after that. And so the first justification for slavery is just like God 
deemed this so, right? It didn't even have to deal with, I mean, it was obviously racist, but it was just like, look, God made white man capital and he made blacks labor. And therefore it is divine right of the white man, you know, same, same holds for Native Americans. Like the natives aren't using the land. It's our divine right. And so we're just going to take it, you know? So I think there's this economic necessity to exploit black labor and to exploit Native American land. And so we create these justifications for it. And, and the easiest justification is like, they're not as human as us, you know, like we deserve it more. And whether that's, you know, divine right or something else, and that something else shifts, right? So as, so the Christian narrative falls out of favor. And by the way, there are many Christians at this time who are like, do not use God for this, right? God does not approve, you know? And so, so that's a complicated story too, because Christianity is, informs a lot of the early abolitionists. So it's not just a one way sort of narrative. Some of the most disgusting, I think, justifications come after that early Christian narrative. And, and it comes into the pseudoscience of social Darwinism, right? So you've got these skull measurements, you've got these quote unquote scientific data that proves, you know, using the terms of evolution that blacks are less evolved, they're less human. And there's these racial categories that seemed so scientific. You know, you've got white Europeans at the top, and then you've got, you know, other kind of Europeans, and then there's Irish, and there's Italian, and then there's the Mongols, and then there's the, you know, Arabs, and then there's blacks, you know, and so it's all seemed very sort of data supported. And so that became the justification. Well, you know, it's it's just how nature deems it, right? It's again, this we're not doing anything. We're just following the rules of first God, then nature. And over time, that shifts to where we justify racial inequality today. Um, we can't use that crap science and we can't use the theories of God anymore. And so now it's sort of like, well, the free market deems it this way. You know, it's just this is what happens. You know, this is their black labor is less useful or maybe they're not as, you know, entrepreneurial. Maybe the black businesses aren't doing well. You know, so you use these economic, you know, the, the economic gods have determined them to be. So the free market deemed it this way. Anything that we do to fix it is anti-capitalist and anti-market. You know, the racism is not this one-headed monster. It's got multi-heads and it's it's got a lot of yeah. uses. You know, it's one is to just plain like hatred, right? And I think that is actually less common. There are also all these economic ways in which racism becomes really useful, you know, or economic pressures that lead to racism, you know? And I think this is where you see in the bombings and, and you see a white majority group that is poor. And uh, instead of sort of trying to fix the problem, which maybe is in, you know, the oligarchs or the you know, Wall Street bankers or or just general policy, which seems complicated and hard to fix, you punch down, you say it's the black people's fault. And so, you know, that's where you get Tulsa and that's where you get the Klan. And that's where you get, you know, the current economic, you know, quote unquote economic anxiety is saying, you know, we're poor and there's lots of inequality. And so build a wall. Um, we'll blame Mexico. We'll blame blacks. We're continuing to do that. We're, we'll blame Muslims. This is, this is a common thread, I think, that race and economic injustice sort of commingle. Right. During certain times in history, I'm thinking of the Great Migration between you know 1910 and, and the 70s. A lot of the Black leaderships, they had a difference in opinion as to you know what the core of the problem is and how to address it, right? I'm thinking of W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and all the way up to Martin Luther King. I mean, there were these different schools of thought, like should you attack the, the, the racism or should you attack wealth? Will wealth alone, you know, focusing on that bring us out of this? What were some of the different ways in which they, in which they thought? Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say, which uh, is a Surprising, I think, to a lot of people, and and I found over and over again is, you know, we we tend to think that, uh, and, and they were, you know, Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey and Du Bois had very different lines of thought, and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, same thing. And there's, you know, black leaders on the left, black leaders on the right. But one of the strands that connects 
all of them is is the focus on black banks, black businesses, sort of black economic organization. And and I think you know, but there were different thoughts. You know, so you've got Booker T. Washington saying we we just need wealth and we'll get respect. He says like if if a black man you know if he has ten thousand dollars, of course he's going to be invited into the train car up front. And if a black man owns the mortgage on a white man's house, you know that white man's going to respect him. You know, and of course like Tulsa proves him wrong. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. The, the, the truth is that you know if you own the mortgage on a white man's house, it's more likely that he's going to join a mob and and try to you know violently take your gains away from you as opposed to give you respect. That's just how racism works, you know? Um, but even W. Du Bois says, like, we need wealth. But for W. Du Bois, it was a much more, wealth was down the list of needs. And he said, you know, we need to either integrate or gain political power. You know, uh, Booker T. Washington was very much, okay, fine, we'll be separate. You know, we'll be separate. We'll have our segregated spaces and and that's fine. And, and W. Du Bois says, absolutely not. You know, we need the right to vote. We need equal rights. You know, and then Marcus Garvey was this new, different strand of Black nationalism, right? Forget white people, right? They're not going to do anything for us. We create our own society. We should have sovereignty. We, we are a colony. You know, of course, he is an external voice. And so he saw the Black problem in America as a problem of colonization, which is what it was abroad, right? We are a different nation within a nation. And so that was another line that that follows through. And you see this again during the civil rights movement. You've got MLK, who is much more radical economically than we have given him credit for. You know, he's really pushing for a complete restructuring of the economy. And then Malcolm X, who where Marcus Garvey left off and says, we need our own sovereign spaces. And and so, you know, you see these two different strands, but both, you know, all of these leaders said, okay, we, we need black business. We need black banks. You know, we need to self-organize. And and to some of them, it was in the meantime, you know, uh, until we get full rights. And others, it was, that was the goal. That was the end result is we would have these strong black corridors. Yeah. So one of the, one of the big, I think, hits to, you know, black wealth was the New Deal, right? And it was often referred to as white affirmative action. Why, why was that? You know, uh, we just created these bounties, these subsidies, these federal credit subsidies, and funneled them straight into newly created white suburbs. So it's not that the suburbs weren't there before. The white middle class was not there before. We created that through these federal policies, and we just left Black communities out. And some of it was purposeful. Some of it was the Southern block in the Senate not allowing the New Deal to go through without these exclusions. And some of it was just reflecting the market. You know, so when the government bureaucrats come in to draw maps based on risk, uh, mortgage lending risk, they surmised, which was accurate, black spaces were more risky. They were less desirable than white spaces. And therefore, it was not profitable to buoy up black mortgages in those spaces, right? So so this gets cemented into law and creates the black ghetto in this century. You know, it furthers white flight. And as the white middle class is able to gain that property sort of, you know, wealth, uh, blacks are left out of that completely. So that was a huge continuation of, but also a crystallization of the racial wealth gap that we still are suffering from. Right. So by, by the 60s, right? I mean, black poverty, because of, you know, centuries of policies and tactics, you know, it was deeply entrenched, right, by the 60s. So what was, I guess, the typical Black economy like at that point, like the typical life of someone in, in, you know, Chicago or Philadelphia in the 60s? Yeah. So something that is um, starting to become apparent in the 60s is this idea that the poor in those areas, in the segregated areas, are paying more for everything. Um, So they live, you know, in substandard housing that they're paying more for. So it actually costs more to live in this ghetto than it does to live in a white suburb because of the the lack of these mortgage loans. And there is public housing, certainly. um, But then, you know, when you're furnishing your home, you end up having to go to these installment lenders, which are the only options for Black communities. And in the white suburbs, you have the proliferation of 
lower risk credit through credit cards and revolving credit that is able to be sold up into the secondary market. And in the black spaces, you don't have that option. And um, so everything just costs more. And and everyone who studied that's the FTC, there's lots of, you know, academics that study this and they show, you know, how you've got two separate credit systems. And so, you know, living in these areas that there, there is a boiling sort of discontent and this idea that, you know, the the racial problem is not just Southern sort of Jim Crow, white water fountain, black issue. It is much more deeply ingrained. It's, it's harder to see, but just as oppressive. So you're starting to see a lot of discontent and, and protest up north as well that isn't focused on. When we talk about the civil rights debate, we focus on the Montgomery bus boycott and Selma. And as we should, I mean, those are historic, you know, uh, things. And, and Martin Luther King, as soon as he finished that, he went up north. I mean, he understood that they were part and parcel of the same problem. And his next phase was in the north. And that's when uh, the civil rights uh, reforms sort of are halted. But um, but it, it was a different problem and it had different manifestations. And it would have been, you know, a harder fix. But it got halted before we could even focus on it. So was this was this before or after the emergence of redlining, right? When did that first appear? Redlining happens in, well, it's, it's crystallized by the law in the, the HOLC maps in 1933, 34. The, so that's okay. the formalized redlining and it continues until like in the 60s. But before that, there are this is informal redlining by real estate agents who refuse to show blacks homes in white neighborhoods and these, you know, a racial covenants and, and other things like that. So let's skip ahead to, to recent history, the 2008 financial crisis, right? It hit segregated black neighborhoods harder and which is similar to what happened during the, the Great Depression. And what ways did it affect black communities more? Yeah. So, you know, you've got these communities that are deprived of credit for, you know, centuries, a century and a half. And all of a sudden the market, the credit market changes, undergoes a lot of changes in the 70s and 80s. And there is the savings glut um, and, and a need for more mortgage loans, right? There's this huge market that is heating up in the mortgage market. And and after everyone who's needed a prime mortgage has gotten one, Wall Street goes looking for subprime mortgages. And where else but in black and brown communities to go to target for subprime mortgages. And so you have these armies of loan originators coming into the ghettos, selling subprime loans. And a lot of people who could have afforded, you know, uh, prime loans are getting upsold. Part of it is racism, right? There's straight up discrimination. A lot of it is just what happens in markets. And that's why I try to show you actually don't need to be, you know, there were black originators, right? There were, you know, white communities. It's just, this is how structural racism works. And so you've got the subprime market that targets black and brown communities. And when the financial crisis hits, you know, Black communities lost 53% of their wealth. And this is wealth that has not yet to be recovered. You know, the banks were bailed out and are back on track, um, very profitable. And a lot of Black families, once they lost their home through foreclosures, have never been able to get back on their feet. So it's a huge hit to the community. The Black banking sector was decimated, 50-something banks before the crisis, and now you have around 20. Um, So that's an industry that hasn't recovered. And so you have real effects of uh, structural racism that are still ongoing. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about the Obama administration and, and their role in this, right? Because this is a tough one to talk about because it, it's kind of contradictory in that, you know, we have Obama as president. However, we, we're in the middle of this financial crisis that is hitting Black communities really mm-hmm. hard. And, you know, he made several promises. You know, for instance, he'd say he wanted to fuel minority-owned businesses and, you know, fuel minority entrepreneurship. But I feel like, um, first of all, a lot of those those promises didn't didn't come to pass, right? They didn't come to fruition. But I feel like from some of his statements, there wasn't a full understanding of the history of how race was intertwined with financial inequality. Is that is that fair? 
Yeah, that is fair. I mean, I think Obama, the Obama administration, the Treasury, the Fed um, really chose to buoy up the banking sector as opposed to individual borrowers. And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, this is one of the fields of my study. And there's a lot of reasons. And, and part of it was just an ideological issue. And part of it was just easier. Uh, part of it was uh, the American public is more comfortable, you know, even though they say they're not bailing out banks than they are individual borrowers. So for many reasons, uh, the Obama administration chose to buoy up the businesses and banks with a hope that they would sort of, you know, pay that forward to borrowers, which which they didn't. And they didn't focus so much on racial equality in economic. Obviously, you know, I, I'm a fan of Obama and I, you know, m- miss him given the current administration. But yeah. you know, at the time during the post-crisis, I was really frustrated. I mean, this was my candidate. This was someone who I really hoped would would take a progressive vision. And, and I tend to excuse Obama because I, I do. I, I love Obama. <laughs> but but he really dropped the ball on, you know, equity, on on racial equity. And and maybe he was not the right person to do it. Maybe he couldn't have done it because of Congress. There's a lot of reasons, but he didn't do it. You know, he didn't. His his HUD, his yeah. Treasury, um, a lot of these agencies that that promised to focus on equality and didn't do it, and and also a lot of the effects were latent, you know. So he thought that maybe saving the banks up top would equalize markets, and they didn't, you know. But there was a lot of trickle down thinking, and and it it is you know ten years hence, and we're saying, well, actually, we have more inequality now, you know. And part of it goes back to Obama's bank bailout, but a lot of it precedes him, you know. It's also unfair to say, oh, he's the decider. He, I mean. He he could have fixed it. It was before him and it will continue to be after him. Yeah, that is a tough one because, you know, like I said, there's a contradiction. You know, I, I love Obama too. And a lot of you know people, especially in light of where yeah. we are right now, really appreciate the things that he's done. But however, you, you can't ignore some of the failings yeah. there. You know, but I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, I think, you know, is it naive to, to think that any single administration could put a significant sure. dent in a problem that has been centuries in the making? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where I think you have the first black president and really he's just going to fix America's banking problems. I mean, anyone who thought that also had the wrong view of the, the racial problem, right? This, this is going to take a while to fix. It's going to take a society-wide commitment to do it. Certainly not just one black president. Right. I mean, you'd have to have the New Deal many times over, right? <laughs> Or just once over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really just the New Deal was so successful because it was profitable all around, you know? And and I think, you know, just another community, you really could fix it with, you know, in one generation because what the New Deal did is really reconcentrate wealth in one generation. Okay, so one generation. So let's say, you know, as we go into midterms and, you know, as the 2020 election begins to heat up, what should constituents look for in these platforms of the contenders to address this? What does the new New Deal look like? Um, the new New Deal is progressive. It is unapologetically so. It is not a, oh, well, pr- the private sector can fix it. it. It is the public sector is responsible and the public sector can do it best in certain areas. So it is it is unabashedly progressive and it, it is system-wide. It is federal. It is meant to really sort of tackle the problems at their root and and it is it is profitable i think i mean just as the new deal was profitable for the government it, you know we need to stop having the zero sum conversation like oh well if we give money to black communities and white communities lose that is not the case if we reduce inequality everyone gains not just you know as a moral gain but as a economic gain we all get more money once inequality is bridged. Our politics is saner and safer. 
we look at people who talk about um, the economy in the right way. They're not just stuck in that. I mean, call it what you want, deregulatory, neoliberal, whatever the word is, that that idea that markets know best, um, that, that the government that works least does more. And that, that, that's a myth that just didn't turn out to be true. Um, we need people who understand that, um, who think big and who can offer visions that look forward to the future and is not just looking at the past. You know, I see some, some promising platforms some promising leaders really change the national conversation. Well, Marissa Baradaran, thank you so much for joining me. I want to say I really love this book and I, and I, this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.